Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Welcome to Protect and Serve, the podcast that delves into the incredible lives of police officers across the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm your host, Oliver Lawrence, and together we will embark on a journey to explore the untold stories of those who dedicated their lives to protecting and serving their communities. You may be sitting there wondering why I chose to start this podcast. Well, let me share with you a little bit about myself. I served as a uniformed officer for over a decade. During my time, I witnessed firsthand the immense sacrifices that officers make daily. From confronting dangerous situations to offering a helping hand, their dedication is unwavering. These experiences left a profound impact on me, even after I hung up my uniform. I created the podcast to shed light on the extraordinary work of police officers, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the globe. Each episode will feature riveting interviews with these brave men and women, offering you a glimpse into the challenges they faced, the triumphs they celebrated, and the personal journeys that brought them to this noble profession. But it's not just about the heroic moments, it's about the individuals behind the uniforms. We'll explore their passions, their motivations, and their unwavering commitment to protecting and serving their communities. This podcast isn't about promoting any particular agenda or glossing over the often complex nature of policing. Instead, it's a platform to celebrate the diverse perspectives and experiences that exist within the law enforcement community. We will address the tough questions, engage in honest and courageous conversations, seeking to understand the myriad of roles and responsibilities that come with being a police officer. Whether you're a fellow officer, someone aspiring to join the police, or a curious listener seeking to gain insight into the lives of those who wear the uniform, Protect and Serve has something for everyone. So join me as we embark on this eye-opening journey, sharing stories that will inspire, enlighten, bring a tear to the eye, and create a better understanding of the dedication and sacrifices police officers make to keep us safe. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Together, we'll explore the heart and soul of those who proudly protect and serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve with me, Ollie Lawrence, the host of what is becoming an incredibly... I say humbling, you know, successful podcast in demonstrating the incredible lives of men and women 
on the thin blue line, which is probably quite an important saying at the moment because it's been quite topical in terms of the thin blue line patch getting in around London. But uh, it is a thin blue line, and it's the thin blue line that separates good from bad. And like I say, the last 12 months, I've been incredibly lucky to interview some of the most amazing people, not only here in the UK, but in the US, um, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, and also parts of Asia. But this evening... I have an incredibly special guest with me, former New South Wales detective, whose brother I interviewed a few months ago, uh, Jason Semple. His brother joins me this evening. Craig, welcome to the podcast. How are you this morning over there in Australia? Yeah, good, Ollie. It's uh, pretty cold over here. It's probably the opposite over. I can see you wearing a T-shirt there. So it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. But um, yeah, you got the you got the older brother, but you, you probably already worked out that I look a lot younger than Jason. So, <laughs> well, I can tell you by English summer standards, it's about twenty eight degrees. So we're all currently really suffering, whereas that's probably just a, a winter summer day in Australia. So, uh, but l- listen, like every good detective, I like to wind back the clock of someone's career, and I know you joined in nineteen eighty eight, bit of time before your brother signed up. But what was the what was the defining factor in pursuing this career-long dream of policing? Oh, mate, it was, there was a couple of things. I, I wanted to be a marine biologist, believe it or not, before I joined the police force. So it was my Because I love fishing, I love the ocean, um, always been fascinated by it, lived on it. Um, but look, when it came to academic prowess, I had none. So, so I might have set, set, set my sights a little bit too high there. Anyway, um, my, my pop, who's, I think, I don't know if my brother mentioned him, but he was basically our role model in, in our lives, my pop. And and um, he, he'd been a powerful union official back in his day. He was the president of a, of a uh, steelworkers union. Anyway, he, he'd known a lot of cops over the years, and, and he had gently been trying to persuade me into a, a police a career because he, he thought I'd be uh, well suited to it. Anyway, I ended up. Long story short, I ended up in the last year of my high school years. Uh, had a girlfriend whose brother-in-law was a detective up here in Newcastle in New South Wales, and and uh, him and I became great mates. And I just like he he would invite me to some of the beers after work with some of his colleagues. And mate, I got just got so drawn in by the level of camaraderie, the fun, the stories they were telling, and there was no way I could choose any other career after that sort of introduction. And, and and I always looked up to, to Ross as well. He, he became a, a real professional mentor for the rest of my life. And um, so that's probably the main reason I, I joined. It was just a, a bit of influence from a couple of people. Uh, but it was just, I think, what really attracted it to me in the end was just that sense of, of being able to belong to something big, you know, something bigger than me, and, and have the, this opportunity to be challenged and to get pulled out of my comfort zone in, into a, you know, a world that, I've been largely sheltered from. So the application process in 1988, I'm quite intrigued by that process because obviously we're a little way forward from that now. Things have changed quite dramatically in terms of the whole process. Here in the UK, back in the 70s and 80s, you used to have a home visit where a sergeant would come and meet your parents and they'd understand who you were. What was that process like for you? Was it straightforward? Mate, very quick. It was, um, we had all that. Had, they went and interviewed your referees, knocked on the neighbours' doors, everything checked you right out. But that process for me, like I, my application process, I put my, put my paperwork in. And it was only like a week or so later they were knocking on doors. A week after that, I was doing an interview. And the same day of the interviews, they're sending me off to get fitted out for my uniform, which I saw, what well, I don't think I'm going to get knocked back if they're fitting me out for my uniform. And a week after that, accepted. Then I had to wait a while because I was still too young. So I had to, had to wait for a period of time before, because uh, you've got to be 19 at the, on the on, um, 
had a station day, but on the day you, you pass out. Um, so I had a little wait a little while, but back then it was only 12 weeks of training. It was like these days they're doing full university degrees and everything. And, but we got, and I, you know, I've got my views about current recruitment policies that it's turning a lot of people away from joining. Um, but for us, we were paid and, but it was only 12 weeks of training and, you know, then they gave us a gun and badge and a set of handcuffs and sent us out amongst it also. Um, but that's, mate, actually, I thought that recruitment, um, process works better than what they got now because you basically as you know you learn everything once you get out on the job i'm always there's a significant well there's some varying differences in terms of what happens when you go through that great when you're going through that training process and you graduate as you quite rightly pointed out there on day one when you hit street duties with generally speaking a field tutor who's kind of leading you the way what they call puppy walking some would consider that a bit of a condescending term but that's what it was known to when i went through as you say, you're armed, you've got the keys to a car, set of handcuffs, all this power available to you. Were you ready for all that responsibility? I don't know, mate, I'll be quite honest. I, once I joined, it was just like you, you just get on the bus and you just go for the ride. It's uh, um, So I just sort of went for the flow. I, 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 I look back in hindsight, and this is like when, when you join and you, you're getting out there amongst it, obviously you think, I'm equipped, I'm old enough, I'm, I know what I'm doing, um, I'm 10-foot bulletproof, all that sort of stuff, immortal because I'm young. Um, but I look back in hindsight and think maybe um, look at 19 years of age. I still have pimples on my face, and I'm and I'm going out there telling blokes that have, you know, going to domestic violence incidents, and and, and telling guys that are in their 30s and 40s who have just been out working in high vis gear all day um, how to how to behave. And it's sort of, and I look back and think, well, you know, how would I react to a young bloke like that coming in dictating to me how to run my life and everything? It's sort of um, so I don't know. I was. In some ways, I was very mature for my age, but in some other ways too, I, you know, I look back and maybe um, was I. So it's it's hard to tell, but you know, like all, all cops, and especially the young ones that were most of the, because I got sent to the city, and and the city was saturated with young cops back then, and it's and you, everyone just sort of just jumped in and and you just reveled in the responsibility. I I think it was I, I just couldn't believe what I was doing when I got out there. There was, there is no, let's worry about the clock here in terms of sort of the demographics of Sydney. You know, in, in, in 2023, Sydney has far more wealthier suburbs than I think it did have back in the 1980s. There's no doubting that at all. One of the most, if not the most challenging districts or patrol areas that there was in Sydney was Redfern. Um, formidable in terms of the types of crime and the challenges that were faced in terms of not only trying to support what was a majoritively indigenous community living within that district, but for a young cop like yourself, as you say, dealing with people with significant challenges, significant, often hate towards the police because of history. What was, what was that like in terms of those first sort of eye-opening moments to, to life in Redfern in the 80s? Harriet Rand's drug addiction was reportedly out of control on the night she visited a seedy Redfern Housing Commission unit desperate for the drug ICE. The daughter of former New South Wales Premier Neville Rand has been arrested over a murder in Sydney. A seedy rabbit warren of addiction leading to the confrontation that sent Harriet Rand to jail. That case shot a spotlight on our building because of the high profile that Harriet Rand had. This building had been neglected for years. It shouldn't have taken a murder to do something about cleaning it up. 
The daughter of former New South Wales Premier Neville Wran will stand trial for murder after waiving her right to a committal hearing. Just in the last few months, we've spent more than three million taxpayers' dollars in the Redfern uh, high-rise towers. One of them has already had the, uh, the new security arrangements put in. We're dead set keen to get the other three done as soon as possible. And now it's a lot, lot better. And if you go down there, generally the tenants these days are looking pretty happy. A couple of weeks ago, my house got robbed. My neighbour, he had a home invasion, he was stabbed three times. Only last week, my front door was broken into. Uh, this is the stairwell that the young man overdosed in and died about three weeks ago. We're aware that there are residents that uh, use and deal drugs, and we're also aware that uh, some drug dealers move in and take advantage of vulnerable people live in there and operate out of their units. I believe that with some of the security measures that have been put in place, the McKell building in particular, I won't say made it impossible, but made it very, very difficult for that sort of thing to happen in that building. We would be investing a similar amount of resources in the area, as we always have. Uh, I don't think that's decreased. We have a high visibility policing team that uh, conduct the operations nearly every day of the week. Oh, mate, it's just what... I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I, I never used to watch the news or anything before I joined the police force, and, and then to be rock up into this place where... They, look, even before I get into that, a little bit of context. Um, before I joined the police, uh, yeah, my brother and I were a little bit different. Jason was a pretty tough kid, and, and I, was, I was pretty quiet. Um, I, I sort of largely kept myself. I, was, I wouldn't say I was timid, but I was, I was someone who... who I, I, violence was something that I was, just had no interest in never got in fights at school or anything like that. So my fight-flight response as a, as a kid, I'd rather run from trouble than run towards it. I definitely wasn't tough as it, it, by any uh, stretch of definition, but I don't know, I, I rocked up at Redfern and and, um, and, and like you said, I, that place at the time, and, and I'm, not, I'm not coming at this from a point of view that it was a, it was a horrible place for me to work, I actually loved it. I, I loved it. It was probably some of the five of the best years of my, my whole career. But to turn up in a place where literally riots are having almost every week of some description, um, cars are getting set on fire in the street. Um, we, had, we had that area of Indigenous housing there. It was, it was known back then as the block, and it was uh, notorious across the country. It was one of the toughest patrols in Australia to work. But it was uh, like getting involved in, in riots, actually being stuck in the middle of being surrounded by hundreds of people who wanted, wanted you dead. It's it, Those sort of experiences, they don't leave you very quickly and they're, they're really terrifying. But but on the flip side, as, as a young bloke, I think um, I sort of got addicted to the adrenaline of, of the work we were doing back. It was a powder keg, that place. It was always, it was, it was always felt like something was ready to explode um, with all the tension we had there. And there's so many layers to it it's so complex a problem, or well, it was back then. Um, and, you know that area's changed completely now, but it was uh, there was so much complexity. But all I knew, I, I had you know, as far as all the indigenous history and 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 you know feelings of hurt over dispossession and all that sort of stuff, I, I had no idea of that. All I knew was I, I just landed in a place where everyone hated me and wanted to hurt me because I was what, what I wore to work every day. Um, so yeah, it took, and, and that's where I think. I think what got us all through that was that, that bond that we all had. Uh, we all had each other's backs. 
uh, well and truly back then. Way, the camaraderie back then was way more than what anyone could experience now. And I think um, I think the reason it's probably one of the best places I ever worked was because of the level of challenge and adversity we all faced. That that brought us so much closer together. Um, so they were they were tough five years working there, but they were also awesome for my own personal growth. And um, and I enjoyed it, but uh, it was definitely a challenging place to work because not only about the indigenous and the the, the you know, volatile racial problems we had, but we also had a huge, it was a very low socioeconomic area. So we had massive high rise towers of um, housing commission units. Uh, and, and the amount of despair in those places was just incredible. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of horrible stories there and uh, a lot of drug crime and, and other things going on. Um, but it was, it was the old days too, you know, it was the, the way we could do the job back then was a lot different than what you could do it now. So um, yeah, the dynamics were a lot different. We talk about quite often in the show when I'm interviewing guests about the challenges of trying to overcome what you're exposed to in those early years when you first sort of get to realise that policing is going to offer you some significant challenges. And one of the greatest skills, I believe, of any police officer is their ability to compartmentalise elements of what they're exposed to and be able to, you know, when you put, it was described very recently, when I when you take off your uniform and you put it in the locker and you close that door, that's work done for the day, I'm going home and, and, and I'm going to just be me. But when you're exposed to such significant incidents of violence and disorder and, as you say, this almost hate because of what you do, as a young bloke who's, you know, fresh out of the academy, how do you process those emotions when you get in terms of this constant adrenaline? How do you how do you sort of learn to cope with that? I, mean, I think um, for me back then, I, I was I just loved it so much that I didn't even want to have days off. I, I, I just look forward to going to work so much every day because I just like I just the thrill of not knowing what's going to be around the corner. The, every shift you work is just it was just so addictive for me. Um, I don't think I had any dramas um, ad- adapting to that as a young bloke because I had no one that I was responsible for. Years later, when I got married and had kids, that became a huge problem, that um, compartmentalization. But, um, but, but but when I first started as a young bloke, totally bulletproof, immortal, nothing can hurt me, just throw me at it, give me another dangerous situation. I just couldn't get enough of it. Flashpoint in Everly Street. Cool. At one end of the street, 100 angry locals, many of them drunk, some just 10 years old, mourning the death of a teenage friend. At the other, a handful of police, outnumbered and ill-equipped. What started out as a few rocks being thrown at passing patrol cars quickly developed into a pitched battle. As police waited for hours for reinforcements to arrive from right across Sydney, the Aboriginal youths created a stockpile of bricks and bottles, storing them in wheelie bins. They siphoned petrol from parked cars, creating Molotov cocktails. Police couldn't move in to arrest them. There wasn't enough riot gear to go around. Other officers were still collecting equipment from various police stations. All cars heading to Redfern, everybody must have a vest. The Aboriginal community blames police for the death of 17-year-old Thomas Hickey. The rioters say there's been an injustice. If I have to lead my people and these kids towards death to die for what they believe in, I will do it. In between police advances and retreats, the rioters turned their attention to the Redfern railway station. Prizing the window bars apart with broken street signs, they torched the station. The men and women in blue could do little. There were already 40 police officers down. 
One officer was knocked out by a brick that was thrown through the air, uh, and a number of others have got uh, uh, broken limbs, legs. With bottles raining down on them, the police advance has stalled. For the 10 metres they've gained, they've lost three officers and one police dog injured, but reinforcements are on their way. Officers tried to drag the injured to safety under a shower of missiles. The rioters using bins as shields as the police tried to use fire hoses as water cannons. When backup arrived, police numbers reached about 200. They had a two-to-one advantage, but the police limited the arrests to just four to avoid further bloodshed. Most of the youths called it a night, torching a car on the way home. Police have spent years trying to patch up strained relations in Redfern. It had been working until now. Sean Fewings, 10 And then by 1991, you found this sort of love for the more detailed investigative work in sort of criminal investigations, referred to in Australia as CIB. My colleagues here in the UK will know it as CID, but CIB for you. When was that sort of bug for the more investigative, detailed work? Um, sort of the, when, when was that draw card for you that you wanted a bit more of that in your policing life? Mate, a part of it would have been because of, of my mate Ross, who, who you know, was my guiding light into the police force in the first place. Um, he was a detective. And, and and the other part of it was, you know, in, in those, those first few years in uniform, I only worked three years in uniform before I went into plain clothes, but, you know, every time I got hold of a, a really good uh, robbery or something like that, um, I sort of, like a lot of cops might have just said, I oh, look, the chances of us actually finding the offender for this is pretty low, so we'll just file it. Whereas I, I used to like chasing it down. I really like getting my teeth into it and just having a crack at, at, at trying to... And once I got a couple of wins like that, the thrill, I think what I was drawn into was just that the thrill of the hunt and the reward you get when you actually get the offender, like when you, when you actually track down the person you, and you get them. Um, I don't know, it's just like what a dopamine hit. You just, you know, it's that's that beautiful sense of achievement. Um, so I, I think I just like that methodical side of, of, of plain clothes work. So yeah, I got um, uh, it was me and one of my mates who, who went through our, our early trainee um, period together. We both got um, identified by the local detectives at Redfern and, and they encouraged us to put in our application and, and off we went. Back in those days, you did, didn't walk straight in the, into the CIB. It had to go and we did, uh, I think it was six months or something, working in an uh, anti-theft squad in the city. So it was basically like, for anyone's watched 21 Jump Street and stuff like that, it's just wearing flannels and I had my ear pierced and all that sort of stuff. And we just running around. We just we had the whole city, like the entire city, Kings Cross, Redfern, everywhere, just to go out there with our own agenda and just lock up as many bad people as you could find. And and we were doing drug work and all that sort of stuff. And it was just to get us used to working in plain clothes uh, and and doing that sort of work. And then we got our our start. And that's, that was the start of my, my plain clothes career in 91. And I worked there at Redfern in, in plain clothes for another two years. But once again, mate, that was um, a bit of context. That was, a, that was a world that was totally different than what it is now. We had a Royal Commission into uh, police corruption in New South Wales in uh, the mid-90s. And so this was like uh, 91, it's well, well before it. And we had the, the culture we had back then, I'm not going to get right into it. There's, there's been plenty of, uh, plenty of discussion on that in the media over the years, but... It was a pretty loose culture, as, as it's probably one way to describe it back then. Um, it was a big drinking culture, particularly with plainclothes work, uh, detectives. So um, so we basically, was, back then there was no psychological service, we just did everything over a beer. And uh, and so, you know, I, I, I guess I've, I've worked under some really good detectives there and, and 
I got taught my craft. Um, you know, working at Redfern as a detective too, we had plenty of work to do. Uh, so it was it was a really good introduction to it. Um, but look, five years into my career, that so that was like three years in uniform, two years in plain clothes. I started to reflect a little bit about where I was headed uh, because as a young bloke, I'd sort of fallen into that culture and I was having a really good time. But I was starting to get into a little bit of strife as well. And I thought, oh, I think it might be time for me to cut away from here as much as I love it and get a start somewhere else. Um, so that was that was when I, I first put my application in to go to a, a, a country town. And, you know, like myself, having experienced some of the, you know, the outback, you know, you talk, I, I worked in the southwest of Queensland in Hungerford. It's, uh, say, just some way north of Wanaring and Burke, and they say the back of Burke, you know, another quite challenging area to work. But you went off to Hay in New South Wales, again, working um, in the CIB and being thrown into the deep end by taking on sort of like your first homicide sort of investigation. What were those experiences like working in the country scene in terms of, I think one of the most, the, the biggest aspects is developing a rapport really quickly with the community. Oh, it's huge. It's, it's one of the best things about it, actually. I, so when I went out there, I'd only just started my detectives course, so I was still unqualified, and there wasn't a lot of people putting their hand up to go out the outback, right? So yeah, they said, "Mate, you're out. We've got a position here." It was but it was a sole detectives position. There was it wasn't there was no other detectives working there. It was some uniform guys, so I was on my own, literally uh, as as a, as a in CIB, and. Like I look back, I remember it was one, actually one of my uh, partners that I had at. Um, you had allocated partners in those days in CIB. It was when I was at Redfern, and he'd spent a lot of his career in the country. And I told him about this this place out here, this this opportunity, and he said, "Mate, you know, um, going out there, it's not going to break you, but it will. It was it will give you the opportunity. It will make you um, because you're so isolated. Um, you know, it helps a long way away. So everything's going to be yours. And it really was. Um, as, as far as going out in the outback, it was." I still remember the first time I drove out there. Uh, it was like 720 k's from Sydney, um, just to give you some perspective of where we we're going. And and when I when I got out into that wide expanse of that just nothingness out there, it just I I actually felt um, like released. It was just this is all mine. I cannot believe I'm coming out here and, and and I'm responsible for this massive area. And I had a look at the map in in the police station when I first turned up, and Hay was a place where it was a POW. Uh, camp back in the Second World War, and it was probably because if they escaped, they had nowhere to go. It was just like it was absolutely in the middle of nowhere. But I, but I basically working out there, like that's where I, where I met my my wife, uh, got married uh, there, and and um, but but uh, which we're now divorced. But it was it was back then. I don't know. I just loved it. And when you're talking about the community side of things, it was one of the things that the first thing for us as cops out there, and I think that's largely died off, is community involvement. And we we mostly did that through sport. A lot of us, you know, got involved in in country. So I played rugby union um, and tennis and, and and other things. We had golf days and you know joined everyone all the town. We'd put police teams into every comp or twilight bowls or anything like that that was going on. We, we were involved in it, and they and they really appreciated that. And and I sort of loved it as well. And there were some awesome characters out there in that outback community. But it sort of taught me a lot too because I, I sort of learnt my my craft by being thrown in the deep end of the pool, learning to swim. I, my first murder, though, actually investigated as the lead investigator. I was only 23 or 24 years of age um, and I still was not qualified. 
if that murder had happened in the city, Homicide Squad or Senior Detectives would have, I would have been the coffee boy, basically. But out there, I was it, and I had to pick the ball up and run with it as best I could. So it was a good way to learn, and, and it was also, once again, coming back to personal growth, uh, it, was a, it was a great opportunity too. But it's funny, it's like, hey, you haven't seen a murder in what, maybe 20 years or something, and I rock up and they have one in three months. So it's like... Yeah, if, everywhere I sort of went in my career, it was always something would would always happen when I rocked up. And I know if it was me, you know, sometimes people have said, refer to me as a bit of a shit magnet. But anyway, it was like, <laughs> but, um, but, but in saying that, you know, great. I had all this opportunity. It was fantastic. But I was, I was only out there for three years. And, and I sort of, over those three years, one thing about country policing, small country towns, is everyone knows what everyone's doing and everyone's business. And I sort of, I wanted to get back to being back in a big office in a, in a bigger, bigger city. Um, so it was only three years later and uh, we, we moved over to, to Wagga and, and I, I worked there for six years, a couple of years in a drug squad as well. But that was, that was actually, in the period I turned up there, there was one two-year period in that, the six years of Wagga, we had 12 homicides in, you know, for a town of 55,000 people, 12 murders in two years. It's just unheard of. It was unbelievable. The amount of work we had, and, and a couple of, like even on Christmas Day having murders and just having your whole family Christmas destroyed and, and going out there and just dealing with all this violence and grief on a grand scale, you just, you know, those sort of things actually started to get to me about the, about then because, you know, all of a sudden um, the world was starting to get a bit malevolent and, you know, I started to struggle with some of that, um, particularly with, with what I was doing with my family because... Like you're talking about, um, you know, shutting things out from your home life. That's that was my armor. I just put armor around myself and and dealt with all the stuff that we were dealing with in in our professional life. But I'd go home and I would never talk about. It sort of helped a little bit that um, that my wife at the time she she didn't have a great deal of interest in what I was doing. She didn't ask too many questions, and that really suited me because I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I don't know, um, Sully the sanctuary of our house and the peace of our house by bringing in the, the, horror, the horror of what we would deal out with out there on the street every day. So I, I became really good at just locking it up tight and, and not sharing anything at home, which caused its own um, yeah, problems in itself as well. So you've, you've come on to the period there between 1996 and 2002 at Wagga, which is between that period, there is obviously a significant life-changing event for your family. 1998, your younger brother joins New South Wales Police and follows in your footsteps. Had this desire, as you know, I've been honoured for him to partake in the podcast, as I said in the opening. You know, he equally was inspired by your pop, was looking at the sort of military type career, um, very fit, very big guy, what liked to stand up for the underdog, uh, and, and certainly was probably everything you would expect a police officer to be in terms of that presence that you want somebody at any particular sort of disorderly event. 1998, I think it was about a week or two after he'd graduated, he's met up with some friends after going to a pub, having a few drinks, as we do in Half Blues, um, and then the incident happens where they stop an individual who's trying to sell them illicit substance. They go to lock this guy up, and he stabs both Jason and his close colleague who died there beside him on the footpath, but Jason is lying there on the ground in all sorts of strife. He was just a decent young man with two young children, happily married, and his life was just taken away from him. Two police officers, it is reported, have been stabbed. They are members of the police force. He's dead. 
we were certainly coming to get him. Talk us around that time. First of all, having your brother follow you into the police, what was that like? Mate, it was just, um, I, I, I still remember my graduation day, and, and Jason was only 16 or something then, and he was as tall as me then, and I'm six foot two, and, and obviously he got a, a lot bigger, as, as you know. He's a bit of a beast, but um, but I, I still remember, I had no idea, at, you know, when he's there at that graduation ceremony that, um, you know, some, some years down the track, he'd be doing exactly the same thing as me, um, 10 years down the track, and he, uh, like you said, he put in for some military um, applications and, and also the police. And I think he, he got replies to both of those jobs on the, at least the same week, but I think it might have been the same day. And I remember he called me and I was working in the drug squad down at Wagga at the time, or just before I started the drug squad down there. And he said, mate, what do you should think I should do? And I said, well, I've got no idea about the military, but I can tell you now, the cops is the best job in the world. I'm having a great time. And, and so he so he put his application, he, that's where he went, straight down to law enforcement. I, and when I, um, when he went through six months of training and then when I went down there for his recruitment, for his, for, sorry, for his graduation ceremony, I just couldn't believe the change in him. Like he'd been, he was a big boy, he'd been working out pretty hard and he was, he was big, fit, and pretty formidable. So I still remember watching him with such pride when he, when he graduated, and I, because for the first time I realised we were no longer just bro, brothers in blood, we were brothers in blue as well, and it was such an incredibly proud moment for both of us. It was such a huge thing, and then you know for two weeks later to go and see him in a um, in an intensive care ward of a hospital with tubes running out of him, uh, like close to death it was so confronting i still remember when i first found out about it i was actually camping uh, about i was back out hay or out that way out the murrumbidgee river way out of town no phone service or anything like that back then um and the, the cops turned up in the middle of our campsite at four o'clock in the morning with headlights shining through my tent and i've gone what's going on here something's bad's happened and they told me your brother's been stabbed anyway we didn't know it was in emergency surgery at the time and um and i'm heading back into the police station with these cops that i knew um just with the dread of fearing that my brother the next thing i'd hear was he's dead and i at no point did i consider it was anything to do with police work because i thought there's no way he's only been out two weeks out of the academy it can't be anything to do with work he's obviously got into some strife in the city when he's out having a beer or something and then when I got to the police station, hey, and I made the call to the commander up in Sydney where they was looking after it, for him to tell me what had actually happened, it was absolutely unbelievable. It just floored me. And I didn't find out that Jason had survived surgery for many hours later because I had to drive back to Wagga and it was so frustrating not being able to just be there immediately. Um, so it was, it was hours and hours before I found out that he actually survived his surgery. And but I still, I, I still knew he wasn't out of danger. There's so many things that can happen even after that. Um, you know, I did guard duty on a cop who was shot, and and you know he was recovering for two weeks, and then all of a sudden he had complications and died. And I still remembered that. But you know, walking in there to the hospital that day and watching see him in that in that condition, I just it was so unbelievable. And as far as impact on family, you know, probably the best way I can describe it. Um, Years later, and I'm talking decades later, when I'm out of the police force and getting heaps of um, you know, therapy for all the stuff that sort of happened, some psychologists went through a lot of the, the incidents that I've been to over the years, and, and surprisingly, some of the ones that caused a lot of my problems have really didn't um, upset me too much. And then they said, well, we're going to 
we really want to just walk through this this incident with your brother and and i said well there's no point us talking about that because that happened to him it didn't happen to me so i just i was really keen just to brush over it and they said well just let's see how it goes and believe it or not that was one that absolutely brought me undone during that that therapy session i was absolutely destroyed with i said what just happened there and they said mate you've got a lot of unresolved stuff going on with this like guilt i actually did feel a lot of guilt that i he, maybe this wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have talked him into joining the police and all this and, and my failure as a big brother to protect him as well even though he, he's bigger than me he's, he's still got that older brother attitude to wanting to protect your family so there was a lot of stuff there and I don't know I sort of I still remember the day we, we went to Peter's funeral um, it was a massive thing in the city um, the, the outpouring was just of grief was unbelievable and the support from the community and um, I, I, he, we got him permission to leave the hospital to go to the to the to the um, to the funeral, and like I, I helped him put his uniform on that day. He was in so much pain, um, but we got to the hospital, and the pride I had in in the way he handled himself that day. You know, we got to the, this massive stairs up to the cathedral, and he's in a wheelchair. I'm pushing him in his wheelchair, and he and he just got up out of it, and he thought, nut. Nah, on walking up those stairs, and he did, and he was in—he was in a world of hurt. In the in the cathedral, every time the congregation stood or sat, he was doing it. Even though I was saying, "Mate, just stay sitting, just sit down, don't put yourself through this," and and that to me said a lot about the fact that he was going to survive it, um, and and he, like he went on to prove that, and, and so it was it was a big big event. There was a, there was a lot lot of layers involved in it. I sort of I met I met Peter's brothers as well in the hospital when they came and visited Jason when he was recovering and it was funny the way your mind works with guilt and things like that I actually felt guilty that my brother was still alive and theirs was gone it's it's, it's really hard to explain but those sort of things you, you don't forget so it was it was a huge thing for our family obviously it was big for for Jason uh, but it was sort of it was a bit of a, a game changer for me too because I sort of this was. There was a bit of a thin link to drug dealing with with what happened to him, and and I just kicked off a drug squad down at Wagga, and, and back then we had a ma massive problem. The heroin was sweeping the country, and um, and so we had a target-rich environment down down at Wagga where I was working, and and I remember I thought this is probably the first time I used my job as a way to cope with stuff, and and I was so angry about what had happened to him, but I couldn't do anything anything about the bloke who had, who had hurt him. But what I knew I could do was go up and lock as many drug deals as I possibly could, and that would be my way of, of, of trying to trying to deal with this. And so I sort of developed a bit of an unhealthy obsession with drug work. And so the thrill of it that really drew me in in the first place, that was sort of more replaced by just an obsession to, to just get as many of these guys in the bin as we could. So did policing become more personal to you after that? Absolutely. It, it became very personal. I, became, I sort of got really angry. That was probably the first time in my, my career that I I turned into a bit of an angry, bitter detective back then. And so I, I was had a bit of experience under my belt by then. And it was um, and I started getting frustrated with every drug op we wanted to run. If the, if the bosses wouldn't fund it or wouldn't give us the, the go-ahead, the green light to go and run these jobs, which I knew were worth running, I became quite angry about it, and and that anger was more stemming from the fact that I was getting in my way of what my mission was, my personal mission about getting out and doing this sort of work. So, yeah, it definitely had a massive um, detrimental effect on my home life as well. It's sort of after doing a couple of years of that, I, I got pretty close to burnout for the first time, and 
I did a, I did a rotation back to uniform for a couple of months just to get my head back in the right place, and and that was a, that was probably the best thing ever. Even though the work was still tough, it was different. It gave me a bit of a time out, and then, you know, I decided around that time it was about the six year mark at Wagga. I thought it's time to get out of here. Um, it was it was just too much. I think once for me once I started locking up the kids of the people I'd locked up, I, I've been here too long. So so I, so I decided to get out of there. And I went up the north coast of New South Wales, put in an application to go up there, and, and I worked up in the north coast of Grafton, Cosarva for the next um, 10 plus years. So, yeah, 2002, we're going to move up to um, Grafton and Coffs Harbour. But before we move on to that, I just want to just quickly go back to to Jason's thing because one of the, one of the defining moments for him is everything that he went through was incredibly horrific, and the resilience he showed to get through all that was quite phenomenal. But the one aspect that I felt was one of the most incredible moments is his ability at such a junior level of service to articulate and provide evidence so crucially important in making sure that the guy that was uh, responsible for these abhorrent acts towards him and Peter Forsyth was put away. And, you know, as a, as a brother who was a detective and, and had given evidence in court a number of times before, to see a younger brother only two weeks out, six, 12 months later, reliving this nightmare and giving evidence in court must have been incredibly satisfying to watch him perform as he did. Well, it wasn't just satisfying to watch him perform, but also for the... Because I, I knew that I was really good mates with the, the homicide lead investigator, who's a detective inspector, um, Wayne Hayes, and, and uh, we worked together at Redfern. Um, years earlier and and the, the good part of that was uh like i, I was basically a liaison <coughs> for our family with with them while they're running the investigation with they weren't telling me everything but like letting me in we all, we were tapped in a lot more than most people would be but but for for wayne to tell me after the court case how well jason had done in the box that was that was in, in the witness box and, and all through the whole case that was um i think that was a big thing for me just have that validation from one of the most experienced detectives in the state to say what a good job he did and how, how proud he was of him. That was that was pretty important. So you arrive into Coffs Harbour as a detective sergeant. Now, I, I, I love to reflect on sort of the appetite for leadership and, 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 you know, because you could stay a detective constable for your entire career, but there's always an appetite to be able to lead other young detectives to show them the guidance often because you may be let down by previous sergeants who were a bit crap or you thought you could do a better job what for you was the appetite other than the financial remuneration that comes with it because that's always nice as well to have because you've always got bills to pay and kids to look after but outside of that was there sort of the leadership qualities that had shone through that showed you had a bit of appetite for that mate others saw, saw that in me before i did and and um probably the pivotal moment for me with leadership was was while i was actually at wagga and that angry young young man that i'd become i had a i had a, a, a commander down there who um i don't know he had this knack of knowing people uh, he was he was a he was a tough he was such a tough operator but he was also uh someone i respected because of his honesty and 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 he he just told it how it was but I remember while I was like I was getting in a bit of strife with the internal complaints and everything. This anger was really coming through on the way I was doing my work. And anyway, um, so I put in and, and did that rotation in uniform. He came and tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, "Mate, I want to put you in as a relieving team leader, as a as an acting sergeant in uniform." And I thought, "That's unusual. I'm normally getting in trouble at the moment. I'm surprised I'm getting rewarded with with this." Anyway, 
So, so I did three months in, in as a team leader, and then I ended up doing another three months as well because I loved it so much. And what I, what he told me later it was more about the fact that you know you're always barking about leadership and and what we're not doing and all the rest of it. So I thought I'd give you a taste of it so you'd see what it was like. And what a game changer that was because for the first time, as much as I may have still got a bit rolled about decisions and everything, I could I, at least I got a taste of look. There's more to it than just you know, there's many more layers to decision making other than just yes or no. There's there's reasons for things, and but <clears throat> having the opportunity to lead other young police and, and share all the knowledge that I that I sort of um, built up over that period of time that really planted the seed for it. And so when I got to Grafton up the north coast, the detective sergeant that we had there at the time, <clears throat> he'd um, he was on his way out on with medical um, grounds and. So I had a couple of years up there uh, relieving as a detective sergeant in, in the detective's office in the CIB up there, and and um, and I, I just I just loved it. It was just that that the leadership stuff is just unbelievable. But it's also um, I don't know. I, I was very people orientated with my leadership style, and I, I really did love looking after my people and just being that buffer between senior management and them. And you know, I take all the hits from up, up above and try to protect them to some degree from all that. And just, you know, so that was a big, big thing for me. And also to just uh, to have young, younger detectives. They weren't so much younger in age, but they're definitely way younger in experience that, that I had up there at that time. Just to um, sort of guide them into all the things that I knew was, was so, so rewarding. You're listening to part one of my chat with retired Detective Sergeant Craig Semple. In part two of our captivating chat, we delve deep into the gripping world of Craig Semple's career with New South Wales Police. Strap in for a riveting episode as we uncover some of the most demanding and intense investigations of his career, where he faced the notorious outlaw motorcycle gangs, the most feared criminals in Australia. Throughout his distinguished career, Craig's unyielding dedication to protecting the community pushed him to tackle challenges that few would dare to confront. Join us as we dive deep into the heart of these harrowing cases, gaining unique insights into the mind of a seasoned investigator who stared fear in the eye to ensure justice prevailed. But that's not all. As we journey further into the episode, we'll confront the greatest challenge Craig would ever face, one that hit far closer to home battling with his own mental health struggles and his diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, we witness the resilience of the human spirit and how even the bravest can find themselves in need of support and understanding. With an unwavering commitment to sharing his story, Craig's candid reflections will offer listeners a rare glimpse into the emotional toll that law enforcement can take and the crucial importance of mental health awareness with this challenging profession. So tune in to part two of our extraordinary conversation as we explore the highs and the lows of Detective Sergeant Craig Semple's career, unmasking the hidden realities behind the badge. Join me and Craig on Protect and Serve as we discover the untold stories of courage, strength and perseverance. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. 
This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk.